my sweet, ooh, informed, therapeutic, not narcissist or addicted confidants, or maybe you are and you're here to learn. I don't know. Welcome to another episode of Confidently Insecure, the podcast where we are absolutely sure we don't know everything. I am your host, Kelsey Dara, and I am so, ooh, this is going to be a good one, y'all. This is going to be a good one. I need you to turn up your volume. I need to open up your ears. I need you to be in a space where you can look at the tough stuff, maybe dive into your own traumatic past, but we're going to be here. It's a safe space. And we've got our wonderful guide and expert with us to get through it. We have this week, Bryn Sicipio, a very fun Italian last name to say, who is a licensed marriage couples and addiction therapist from Pennsylvania, who is the owner of BCA therapy with over 10 years of clinical experience working with long-term consequences of unhealthy and addicted relationships. Bryn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I just first have to know, like, we've had so many therapists and doctors and psychologists on this podcast. I have to know what got you into the specialty of sort of uh, addicting, uh, addictive, is it addicting, addictive relationships uh, with narcissistic abuse? What gave you insight into wanting to go deeper into that category? Well, if we bring it all the way back, I actually was a parole officer for many years. Wow. And within that realm, to make a very long story short, I came across a lot of individuals, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. who were coming through the criminal justice system, coming through jails and through the courts that had problematic use with drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. So there was little support, little treatment. I mean, people were doing the best they can with what they had, but the resources were not enough. So I made the decision to go back to school and to get my degree, and then to start working as a therapist. And to be honest with you, so many people, individuals, couples, families that I see where addiction is a part of their unfortunate life and their Mm -hmm. family history, there also tends to be a presence of really toxic relationships as well. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people that then turn to drugs, alcohol, or other unhealthy relationships Mm -hmm. as a way to kind of like avoid and not deal with or escape from the toxicity that has been present in their lives. Wow. I find that so incredible that you saw something in the system that felt wrong or uh, like a chink in the armor. And you were like, "Mm, I see where the equation ain't nothing. And I'm going to go back to school (laughs) to try and help reverse this. And that's so interesting to me being a parole officer. I imagine, did you work more with women or men in your field? Uh, There tends to be more men in the criminal justice system than women, just as, you know, a general uh, population, you know, we're looking at that. Um, The the parole department's divided up into a couple different uh, specialties and areas and sections. The group that I had that I was assigned to were people who were just constantly uh, violating the conditions of their parole. So I wasn't able to work closely with people on the rehab side of things. What my job was, was to bring them back in front of their judge and saying, hey, this person's not following the rules, whether it's they got a new arrest or they kept using drugs. But I would see the same people. Mm. And that's where the problem was. Like they were leaving me. Someone else was, you know, working with them or trying to or not. And then they would come back in. Mm. Maybe you were just such a good parole officer. They were trying to hang out with you more. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think too many of them wanted to hang out. Maybe me. not. That's the optimist in me being like, yeah, you're just yeah, so great. Right. Um, yeah. I am so curious on your thoughts of the way we treat addiction in the punitive system in terms of how do we, and especially you're seeing people after they're out of the system, are we setting them up for success or are we acknowledging it as, you know, a disease, which I have like convoluted thoughts on? Like, what's your opinion? Things are definitely progressing in a positive direction in terms of how the criminal justice system is responding to substance use disorder, responding to mental health. Mm. Is it enough? No. Will it ever be enough? 
Probably not, because by the time someone finds themselves in the criminal justice system, the criminal justice system is dealing with a set of behaviors mm -hmm. that a person's displaying, when really what we have in front of us is a person with a history of trauma, mm -hmm. a person with a history of oppression, mm -hmm. a person with a history of family legacies mm -hmm. that go back beyond, 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 beyond. Mm -hmm. So the criminal justice system shouldn't really be fully engaged in treating what happens three generations before in your family. Right. Now, that being said, there are a lot of specialty courts that are on the scene that have been popping up. Like you have a behavioral health court that really what? supports people that once they find themselves in the criminal justice system, they're getting a lot of treatment for their mental health, a lot of medication support, medication management. Uh, around me, there is a veterans court. Mm. So any veteran, which, you know, PTSD yeah. sometimes can really lead to very challenging behaviors that may find you in the criminal justice mm. system. There's a veterans court program. We also have what's called the drug court program. And there's actually the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. That started like in 1989, I believe it oh. was. And I think now to date, there's probably close to 4,000 drug court local programs. So yeah. things are getting a lot yeah. better. Um, there's a lot of different areas of the criminal justice system where training certainly could be improved. Sure. I would say it's a lot better than it once was mm. and we can still grow. Do we just like not have enough therapists like in general, do you think, or is it really the training? Because like you came at it from a very, I, I have to assume whether you liked it or not, became a very like in trauma informed therapist and a very like yeah. addiction specialist therapist. And then you became the therapist. Do, do you think it's like, are we working top down or bottom up and are, do we have enough? <laughs> Yeah. So again, like same thing with the criminal justice. Well, the, could everyone go to therapy? Sure. Yeah. Should everyone probably go to therapy? Yeah. Is there a therapist for everybody? Like, I don't know. Right. You know, it would be nice if there was. Right. Um, and going to therapy, you know, you can attempt to address something when you're 20 and it may look very different when you're 35. Mm. Uh, family dynamic stuff when you're single may look different when you're married. Mm. Child versus childless. Like all of those dynamics can influence how you respond to therapy, personality of your therapist, different things like that. So there's a lot of influence in terms of like what makes a good match mm. and what can be supportive of people. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's enough therapists in the world. I definitely think that the training that therapists receive can range. Mm. And sometimes that's really, really good training and really, really good supervision and amazing education. Mm. And sometimes it's not hitting that mark. Yeah. And I have to imagine when you're talking about or, you know, seeing clients the way you do, where there's kind of like this specialty niche in it that you had to have a certain amount of training to understand like the cycle of addiction and trauma yeah. and generational trauma and like what a narcissist is. Like, do you feel like you gravitated towards that because of your experience as a parole officer? The, definitely with the addiction piece, with the drug and alcohol mm. piece, for sure. That was something that was really driving. It was really driven by my, like something else has to happen here, mm. right? Like when we incarcerate someone that is using drugs or alcohol, there is a benefit there in terms of it stops the behavior, mm. right? So when we know this person's becoming incarcerated, they're not going to overdose. They're not going to kill someone mm -hmm. in a DUI car crash or anything like that. So we're stopping the behavior, mm -hmm. but we're not treating the behavior. Mm -hmm. So my focus was, okay, I can stop the behavior all day long, right? Got that. But how are we treating the behavior and making sure it doesn't keep happening? Mm -hmm. And then through that, you know, your work kind of evolves as a therapist and what you really want to get into and clients you really feel connected to mm -hmm. and things that you really seem to understand and frameworks that you apply. So there's a certain amount of like professional development mm -hmm. that that I guess happens concurrently with your experience as well. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense too. Like you probably learn a lot from the different types of cases that come in and, oh, yeah. you know, have to, to reroute with, with what you learn and bring to the table. Um, 
I want to talk about even even just say someone isn't coming from um, the criminal justice system. Do you see regular old folks that uh, civilians, if you will, with this same kind of stuff? Or do you still mostly work with um, formerly incarcerated? No. So right. So right now in our in my private practice, it's non-criminal justice system clients. Got it. We do have some clients that will get, um, find themselves in a little bit of hot water. Mm. Uh, DUI is kind mm. of the most common thing, mm. but it's mostly just regular people. Um, I don't even want to say regular people. I know, right? It's like, people, what's the, yeah, the, it's like stigmatizing yeah, in and of itself, yeah. but people who have not been arrested, right. people who are coming here of their own free will, they're not court mandated mm. and their challenges and their struggles are just as big mm-hmm. as those who have been court mandated and who have been arrested and who have been in the criminal justice system. So I have been sober from alcohol for two and a half years and I was yeah. luck- very lucky to never have experienced uh, DUI or arrest because of that. And I truly thank the universe every single day. Like can't, you know, thank my lucky stars. And I, think that it's um not talked about enough about what like how addiction develops and like how that Mm -hmm. informs your relationships and so i'd love to dive into that a little bit and i wonder like first of all what are your thoughts of what addiction is is it a disease yeah so i definitely subscribe to that belief that it is a disease and i like to for people who say uh cancer is a disease and Kids who have cancer didn't choose this. They didn't put the cancer in their body. You put the drug in your body. You put the alcohol in your body. What The metaphor that I like to use is diabetes. Mm. So diabetes can certainly have a genetic predisposition. It can be um, something that we don't choose, mm-hmm. right? And depending on how we understand it, what we know about it in our family history, and then how we live our lives can increase the chance that we become an insulin-dependent diabetic who's getting their limbs amputated or not. Mm -hmm. So same thing with addiction, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, If I am diabetic, so diabetes actually does run in my family, Mm -hmm. and my A1C is probably a little bit higher Mm -hmm. than it should be. Um, And it doesn't help that I have cases of Girl Scout cookies oh, in my house. Oh, girl. I've been able to avoid it this cases. season somehow. <laughs> well, I got I a sugar Girl addiction. So. Oh, it's rough. Well, yeah, yeah you gotta, you're yeah. eating from your own supply. You're getting high on your own supply. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Exactly. So there's things that if you have a genetic predisposition to diabetes, you should make sure you're not smoking, make sure you're not drinking, make sure you're not eating an incredible amount of carbohydrates and sugars, move your body, don't live a sedentary lifestyle, right? Well, if in your family history, there seems to be a genetic predisposition or a pattern of unhealthy use. So no one has to say, well, my grandmother never went to an AA meeting, so therefore she's not an alcoholic. (laughs) If it doesn't look okay, (laughs) if something in your stomach says, "Eh, I don't know why every gathering we have to do this, or I don't know why so-and-so doesn't seem to be able to hold their liquor, then you need to think to yourself, what's the intentional relationship I want to have with alcohol, if any, Mm, right? How do I want this to look in my life? What do I want this to be? There is a concept in the field of addiction when we're talking about this genetic predisposition that says when you first start using, Mm -hmm. let's say you first start drinking 13, 14, 15 years old, Mm -hmm. okay? That that is heavily influenced by your environment, Mm -hmm. right? All your friends are doing it, peer pressure, bullying, whatever the case may be. As you get older, the environmental influence decreases, and that's where if there is a genetic predisposition, if there is a disease, that will increase, Mm -hmm. so that will take over. Prime example, college campuses. Mm. You can go to any college Mm -hmm. campus today Mm -hmm. in this very moment, swipe 30 kids off campus, Mm -hmm. survey them about their alcohol use, and a large percentage would meet the diagnostic criteria for inpatient treatment. Wow. Calling them right? out. I agree. It's a problem. Now, now, take those 30 kids. They graduate. They get jobs. A lot of them are no longer meeting the criteria for inpatient treatment. Mm. Why? 
because there's not an, there's not a disease there. Mm. The genetic predisposition isn't there. Mm. The environment changed. Mm -hmm. And it man and their management of it changed. Whereas exactly like someone like me, I continued to have a bottle of wine every night because I was like, I deserve this or like, cause I'm a wine girl or like, I'm just at home watching game of Thrones and I need a bottle of wine <laughs> cause they're drinking wine. It's like, if, if you can separate that and, and have that healthy relationship with alcohol, we're not, like you said, we're not carrying that disease, but it right, really is. Right. I was going to ask you like, where do you see, what age do you see the most influence on that long-term disease staying versus breaking off and and I assume is it is it kind of college age 20s yeah it, it definitely it definitely can be college age but I'll tell you what the pandemic was very interesting because there was a lot of people in their 30s and 40s that were saying this was never a problem for me until thank you covid <laughs> and now I can't stop mm. right and so what we were seeing there is again a change in the environment. So now we had people where these natural deterrents were dropping off. Mm. So it wasn't, I have to go to work in the morning and I have to drive in, right. or I have to go give a presentation in front of my boss. It was, oh, I can roll downstairs, hungover, <laughs> in my pajama pants, turn on my computer. No one needs to even see my face today. And so therefore these deterrents They don't really mean anything. So it wasn't that people were saying, oh, I can't drink because I have to go to work tomorrow. When the pandemic hit, it was, oh, actually, I can have a drink because I don't got to do anything but click on a couple emails. Right, right. So again, COVID changed things in terms of like the age and what we were Mm -hmm. seeing there. I equate it more to like the natural deterrence were no longer at play Mm -hmm. and the world was like kind of on fire going to hell in a handbasket. No, it was like two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. And here we are like two years later, nobody knew what was going on. So the stress, I think there was a a part of excitement about that. Oh, we're home. Like order your kids, 8 million things off Amazon and keep them busy. You know, (laughs) Um, it seemed like a little mini vacation at first. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic certainly changed a lot of things, but Mm. uh, generally speaking outside of that, you can see a shift for people who go to, and again, doesn't apply to everybody, traditional four-year college, mm-hmm. that that behavior looks like one way. And then when they graduate, it may or may not change. And again, that can be an, maybe one indicator. Yeah, sure. Um, I wonder how does being an addict or alcoholic or having an unhealthy relationship with those substances inform our relationships because I feel like we think about the obvious of, of it's a way to escape or it's a thing that um, masks you where you're allowed to be more, I'm making air quotes, free in the way you speak to someone. It allows anger to come out more easily. Maybe um, people feel like they can use it as an excuse, but what are maybe some of the other ways that we're not thinking of how these addictions inform our relationships to ourselves and other people? When you have someone that's in a relationship, and I'm just going to use a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. because we have relationships with everyone in our lives, right? When we're in a romantic relationship with someone, it really can permeate every aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. So sex, right? Sex is an important part of a relationship. And if you are drunk, it can really challenge your ability to perform or to enjoy Mm -hmm. the experience of having that like lovely intimate exchange with someone Mm -hmm. that you want to be connected to. Mm -hmm. So that can be one way. Um, How you smell, which could change your intimacy as well. You know, if you're drinking a lot and you're sweating and then you kind of smelly during the day, Um, Your hygiene and how you take care of yourself may not always be up to par. Mm. You may um, also begin to really just decline in your physical health. Mm. And again, like it can be scary for a lot of people to watch their partner physically decline in front of them, Mm. whether it's putting on an incredible amount of weight gain, their skin changing, how they breathe, 
um, you know, when you are, alcohol is a depressant, right? So it depresses your central nervous system, which means you're probably going to be snoring now when you're mm-hmm. sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that you're probably going to be reacting a little bit slower than you normally would. Mm. Um, your eyes may look a little bit different. So you don't necessarily have to be falling down drunk mm-hmm. for it to create distance in your relationship. Mm. And when it gets to the point that alcohol is such a significant problem for you, any one of those little things can be a great distance maker. Right. Right. So if you're snoring, if you have a funny look in your eye, if you didn't shower till late in the day, all of those things. And then once really distance enters the relationship, we're not communicating clearly and directly. We're not communicating with empathy. We're not engaging in compromise and doing nice things for one another. It's like we're keeping score Mm -hmm. and it doesn't even have to be about keeping score that these are the nights that you drank and these Mm -hmm. are the nights that you don't drink. It could be, well, I did this for the house or, you know, I've made dinner for four nights in a row or I've picked your clothes up 17 times today, (laughs) whatever it may be. Right. And then that just creates a hierarchy within the relationship. And these are really hard places to come back from. Yeah. And I, I want to know about what you think of addiction and narcissism going, do they go hand in hand and why? So they can. One of the tricky things is that when you have experienced a substance use disorder, so whether you are addicted, physically dependent upon alcohol or drugs, the function of addiction is to take over its host and kind of like control the environment so that way the addiction can continue. Mm. So sometimes you may have someone that is really struggling with their alcohol and drug addiction and they're engaging in behaviors that look like narcissism, Mm. right? That they are lying to people, they're manipulating, they are gaslighting people, Mm -hmm. they are really stealing, you know, trying to convince people that what's happening is not what they're seeing and vice versa. So for someone who is in active addiction, it very much can mimic narcissistic behaviors because that's the function of the disease. Mm. Like that's how the disease lives, mm. right? Like addiction lives in extreme. Addiction lives in lies. It's mm-hmm. not going to serve. That's like the, the oxygen that yeah. fuels it, you know? Yeah. And is there an opposite to that in like, what about narcissists who become addicted or who are alcoholics? Does it like, I, I, I don't really know much about narcissism. I think I was in a, a I, I've talked about it before on the podcast. I was in mm-hmm. a um, emotionally and, and physically abusive relationship in my early twenties with someone who I hundred percent believe was a narcissist, like didn't live in the same plane that the yeah. rest of us did. And yeah. When he drank, it was certainly worse. It was like adding gas to gasoline to the fire. But I don't know that his use was the cause of his narcissism. It was almost like I was like fearful when that did happen because I was like, oh, God, you don't know what kind of Jack Hyde situation was going to come out. Shout out to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. My confidants, you guys know I have recently been going through just an absolute, just wild mental health re-uptick, refresh. And I would not have been able to do that without my counselor, who I love at BetterHelp. What's interfering with your happiness? What's preventing you from achieving your goals? I personally knew I had this ketamine therapy journey starting soon and I was so nervous and I needed that person, that third party, that doctor who knew what they were talking about to help me get prepared for that environment as well as reintegrate all of things I've learned back into my daily life. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling and BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. There are licensed professionals and counselors who are specialized in areas such as self-esteem. Ugh, who doesn't need it? Grief. Oh God, things are so hard. LGBT matters. So gay. Family conflicts. Mom. And anger. And depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors and all 
additional 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com CI. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash CI. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now that I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortless, effortless, less, yeah, effortlessly chic year after year, like uh, premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from 30 doll hairs, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. I can confirm this. I'm actually wearing Quince pants right now. You are. They are so, they're they're loose, they're breezy. These babies have a button, a fly, drawstring, and elastic in the band. So I can like, I can dress them up, I can dress them down. Yes. They are, they're the perfect pant for summer and I'm really comfortable as hell in them. Honestly, I am wearing the Quince 14 karat gold earring loop right now. Oh my god. I know. I think it's so cute. It does not tarnish. It is so comfy and I have sensitive ears so I'm really loving this for my body. So get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash Kelsey for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Kelsey to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash Kelsey. Are you looking to cut back on alcohol this year? (laughs) You are talking to two sober Sally's. You know Zach and I love to drink recess zero-proof craft mocktails because it's a guilt-free way to unwind. It has 0% alcohol made with real fruit, only 25 calories or less, and it is sweetened with agave because y'all know I got that sugar addiction. It has incredible flavors. One of my favorites is the grapefruit Paloma. The Paloma is actually one of the last drinks I was drinking when I was drinking alcohol. So this is like a nice little nostalgia moment and it still feels really fun in my hand. And there's no reason we should be missing out on the partying either. It's such a good replacement for alcohol, a great drink for having in between alcoholic drinks, unwinding at home, at dinner parties, chilling on the couch. It is endless. Get 15% off recess mocktails now at takearecess.com slash Kelsey. So you can enjoy your favorite cocktails without the consequences. Right, because it does, it does, it did magnify his behaviors. Right. Yeah. So I would not say, and I'm just double checking myself as I'm thinking here. I would not say that addiction leads to narcissism. Mm. When we are talking about, and the technical term is like narcissistic personality disorder. Right. When we have individuals that have a personality disorder, mm-hmm. this is something that is not treatable. It is something that cannot be cured. Mm. Drug and alcohol, absolutely treatable. Wow. Absolutely can live a life in recovery. Absolutely can change your behaviors there. Yeah. But for someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder, that's not changing. So wow. you may see someone, again, because of the function of their addiction, may look like they have some of this stuff going on. But if we see them in recovery, that's, that'll drop off. Mm. Right, that's not going to be present anymore. I wouldn't say that there's a high population of individuals that have narcissism that also are addicted to drugs and right. alcohol, but it definitely can coexist. Right, because that that's kind of what I'm thinking in my head is like the stuff you're talking about with the alcohol and addiction. Once you get rid of that, and how much life you're, how much better your life can be. Like that's me. I'm like, yeah. I'm the poster child for that. And right, right. the confidants <laughs> hear me talk about it all the time that I'll never try to convince you to get sober, but I will scream from the rooftops about how much better my life is and only hope that that would inspire other people. Um, right. But when I think about my ex, I'm like, that that was who he was. And yes. I don't know that maybe getting out of that relationship fueled or fired played into my problems with alcohol. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. I have a hard time with the word alcoholic because I think in AA, which I didn't do the program. I tried and I was like, this ain't for me. I feel like they 
perpetuate the idea that you're either an alcoholic or you're a completely normal functioning person or right, your life right, is one right. drink away from falling apart or you're completely sustainable with managing your alcohol usage. And I'm like, that's too much of a gray area for me. But I yeah. wonder like how that abusive relationship, I'd never thought about it until this very moment might have informed some of my alcohol issues, like just not dealing with that trauma. Yeah. Your response to it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, yeah. and the fear of like who he turned into when he was drinking. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of people who do have this type of personality disorder that don't drink because they want to remain in control. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because they want to be able to have that constant access mm-hmm. to the narcissistic supply. Mm-hmm. So that's why I don't think it's as common. There's certain, it's certain, I've seen it. It certainly coexists. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it doesn't, it does not lead to, right. And you know, like this is who you are. Like he, you're spot on. Like he, he never really did drink it when he did. It was like a beer or two or, and I think then that opened the floodgates of like a reason to be even more using that, that, uh, power and control dynamic. Right. Um, do we have a predisposition to having an addictive personality? So this is interesting because there's there's different theories on this, right? Like, is there such thing as an addictive personality? There's a really cool book. It's an old book by Craig Knocken about like addictive personality and what it looks like. My approach is this. So I don't. There's not there's not a personality disorder mm-hmm. when it comes to addiction. There is something for a lot of people that do have a drug and alcohol addiction that they are attracted to extremes. Mm-hmm. So I may see people that are sober. And very high powered jobs and working a hundred hours a week and right. Exactly. (laughs) And in the gym, 12 Mm -hmm. hours a day, Mm -hmm. coaching 75 sports teams for their kids, things like that. So there is something about always living in the edges, always being in the extreme that gives them a rush, a sense of purpose, a drive that feels very comfortable Mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. So when I'm working with people and we're talking about recovery, the word I use is balance. Mm. You may do things that are healthy, again, air quotes, healthy, but anything in extreme is not healthy. Even when you look at the research that people have done on clean eating, Mm. sometimes that's still not healthy and safe for you if you get too extreme with Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. If you're working out to the extreme, you can actually increase your ability to get injured. Mm -hmm. You're not letting your body recover. If you're working 700 hours a week, which doesn't exist, but if you work, you know, 162 of the 168 hours that are in a week, not healthy, not balanced, incredibly stressful. So I don't know. I don't know if there's an addictive personality but I definitely think that people who experience addiction enjoy the extremes. Yeah. And you're like hitting the nail on the head. I'm just thinking of my close circle of friends and family that are addicts that got sober and became like obsessed with CrossFit or like obsessed <laughs> with doing their, like, um, their, uh, their work or whatever. Or like if we go to DIY something, it's like the biggest version. It's like the most, (laughs) that's probably my problem is my boyfriend will tell you that I have an unrelenting determination and willpower. Like I will not give up on something. Like if you tell me this round hole won't fit in that square peg, I will fucking make it. Like I will not walk (laughs) away until it fits in. And I don't know if that's, Maybe it's a combination of things, right? Like I have to assume it's growing up with the family that I had, the environment and the things yeah, like that. Yeah. But the fact that I've, I, I maybe think it's better to be addicted to bettering yourself than doing, you know, Coke off of someone's butt at two in the morning on a Tuesday before you have to go to work. Yeah. I mean, if I had to have a choice, <laughs> I would choose bettering yourself. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, I, and you know what? I mean, it's, it's rare that one plus one equals two mm. when we're talking about the development of a person, mm. right? So we have genetic predisposition. We have family influence. We have peer influence. We have educational drives. We have our own individual personalities. Take a family of 10 siblings Each of them have 10 completely different experiences. They had 10 different parents Mm -hmm. because we have parents showing up 
at different points in their life for these kids, different points in their marriage, different points in what's happening in their own family of origin. So there's a lot that can goes into and contributes to who we are and how we approach the world and how we perceive the world as well. Yeah. And speaking of that, uh, we had a question wrote in about uh, growing up with an addict. So a parent figure is struggling. You know, you see that your whole childhood. How does yeah. that inform our relationships with alcohol because i've personally seen it like two ways you know you're either yeah that's what i was gonna say diving in or yeah like abstinent like what yeah what are your thoughts on that yeah generally it goes one of two ways whether you're repeating Mm -hmm. that same type of relationship um there's a wonderful I don't like to like book drop a lot, but there's no, like are you kidding? Like we love little... books here. <laughs> I know, but sometimes people are like, read this book, read that book, read this book. And I'm like, eh, they can't all be Give good. it to us. <laughs> um, there's a wonderful book. I think it's copyrighted 1981. It's a gem. Love it. The book is called It Will Never Happen to Me, and it's by Claudia Black. She's around. She's absolutely amazing. She does an incredible amount of research in terms of how alcohol and addiction impacts kids in the family Mm -hmm. system. So kind of one of two ways uh, is that a lot, that's a great book if anyone's ever curious about their own family history or how they ended up in this place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the analogies that she uses are a little uh, outdated, Mm -hmm. I would say, because it's copyright. But (laughs) but it's a good resource. Um, What I tend to see is either we're repeating those patterns Right. So kids who grow up with alcoholic parents sometimes themselves will also become addicted or alcoholic uh, or get into a relationship with people that really struggle with their drug or alcohol abuse. Or they are 100 percent anti never happening. Not me. Won't even consider, you know, just very much on the opposite ends of that. Um, There definitely are. I mean, there's exceptions to every rule. That's not a hard, fast rule. There's definitely gray areas in between. That's just kind of the two that seem to be most prevalent. Mm. And I'm seeing an interest, and there was a question asked about this, and I'm also seeing it personally with like my friends and even fueled by the pandemic, like you mentioned, where we're adults, we're in our early 30s, late 20s, and our parents are older, and we're seeing our our old adult parents becoming <laughs> you know, either retired and now that all they do is drink and it's like, we're all grown ups. Like I can't, you know, maybe I didn't have any agency as a kid to be able to say, Hey, that's not good. But I certainly don't have any as a 30 year old to be like, Hey, you should cut back. Like we're all, it, it feels too far gone. So I'm curious about your thoughts as maybe like older people deal with their parents drinking or addiction or use habits changing. Like, what the fuck is that about? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think in general, there's been a big culture shift over the last 20 years in terms of alcohol and what it looks like. It's not just like you drink scotch, right? Right. Which I think is like, you're a businessman who drinks scotch. I think that was something from like the 70s that there's been a huge uptick in wine. Mm -hmm. There's been a huge uptick in these craft beers, these IPAs, everyone's opening a brewery, everyone's got all this stuff. So I think the prevalence and also the social promotion specifically of alcohol has gone through the roof Mm. over the last 20 years for sure. Mm. So that I think has influenced then when people are older and how they retire and how they spend their time, it changes, right? You have a bunch of retired 60 year old women that are like, we're going wine tasting now, right? Like that wasn't a thing when I was a kid, 60 year old women were, they were not wine tasting. Right. That's not, I don't know what they were doing, but it wasn't my <laughs> It was like you cards know? or something. Yeah, like bridge. Yes, yes. Like we're going to play bridge. I remember my grandma would always have like her bridge club. Exactly. Like once they'd but come over and play bridge. But don't you think that that was just a cover for all of them, like either <laughs> fucking each other or like doing coke or something? I feel like it was naughty. I don't know. I have to say for that group, probably none of the above. They were yeah, pretty, I grew uh, up in Florida. pretty kosher people. Maybe a little yeah, different. different story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably a different story there. But I think at any point in time, regardless of how old your parents are or regardless how old you are, if you see someone that's doing something that doesn't feel safe, mm-hmm. that you can certainly say to them, like, I, may, maybe I don't see the full picture. Maybe I, you know, kind of put your disclaimers out there. I know I'm not here all the time. I know we don't live together. And when we are together, it just seems a little concerning. Right. So whatever you want to do with that information, you can do with that information. 
I just want to make sure that I'm being clear with myself and that I'm being clear with you and I'm doing everything I can to help keep you safe. When we tie things to safety, mm. like you kind of can't argue with that. Mm. I, you know? I so, agree. Personally, I agree. If someone said their safety felt threatened around me and my usage, but I feel like when it's family, they're just like, oh, you're being so dramatic or, oh, don't be, you know, like safety. You're a grown woman. Like what's unsafe about this? Or I'm not drinking yeah. and driving or... You know. Well, right. right. And so they might say that, and we're not expressing our concern to try to control their response. Mm. We are expressing our concern because we know that that's what feels good for us and mm. that if we express our concern, we can sleep better at night. Mm. That's Because nice. what, I mean, worst case scenario, we don't say anything, something happens, and now we're like, oh my God, why didn't I say something? Yeah. There's certainly a... Um, you know, growing up with family with, with addiction and, and, um, drug use, it, there, there became a point early, maybe I was still in my teens where I had to go, I did everything I could. And if they die tomorrow, I wouldn't feel bad about the things I did. You know, I tried as yeah. much to lead the horse to water and if it doesn't drink water and it exactly. dies of dehydration, like girl, that's on you. So I feel like there's definitely something to exactly what you're saying. Like that peace within yourself. Of yeah. If you, it, it's better to say something and maybe fear that I think people don't want to mess up relationships, right? Like even with a partner or a lover or whatever, that you're fearful that it will distance the relationship or cause distance. And yeah, but like, this is where you have to be honest with yourself because your anxiety about not saying something is creating distance. Mm. It's exactly what's happening there. You're sitting there thinking, should I say something? Oh my God, are they going to go get another drink? What's happening? Okay. How are they getting home? Let's leave early enough. So we're not staying to, we're past the point of no return. Like there's already distance there. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's just be honest about it. Yeah. That's a great you know? point. Yeah. We're not really tapping into those systems and considering our own feelings about it. Um, and even like subconsciously what that does to the relationships, the way you might start to view that person, you know, like as right. infant infantilizing or whatever them. And, um, so I guess wrapping up, I, I want to know when people get, they've maybe are able to identify and label their situation as either someone they love, or maybe either, either themselves has an unhealthy relationship, maybe addiction, um, substance abuse disorder, um, what are, what are like our first steps even? <laughs> so it can be different for everybody. It first steps. Well, first of all, let's talk about first steps when you have someone that you love mm -hmm. that you're concerned about. So first steps is to create, is to communicate with them clearly and directly, mm. right? When you drink, this is what happens. What would you like to do about it? Right? So clearly and directly, this is a concern and let me present to you a question which helps you feel like you have choice in this, mm. which can increase the probability that you're going to do something about it, mm. right? So when we see someone that's concerning, and then again, like tying it back to safety, and if the safety continues to get ramped up, like the concern for that, then you have to make a lot of times, very difficult decisions mm -hmm. rooted in safety. Mm. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't pick me up from work anymore mm. because I don't feel safe driving in the car with you. Mm. Or I'm sorry, I can't have you babysit the kids. Or I can't let you dog watch, you know, little Brewster or whatever <laughs> because I'm concerned that something's going to happen mm. because it doesn't feel safe. Those are not easy steps to take. It's not comfortable. There's no good choice there. I'm asking you, do you want to eat a chocolate cockroach or do you want to eat a chocolate centipede? Like they both suck. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And this is what happens when drug and alcohol addiction is a part of your world. Mm. So if you have a concern for somebody else, express it to them clearly and directly, ask them what they want to do about it. So they feel like they have a choice and they mm. feel like there's some options there for them. And if safety continues to be an issue, you're going to have to make some really hard choices and be really honest with yourself about that. Mm. Now, if you yourself are like, oh God, this feels like it's getting a little out of control, tell somebody. And chances are the majority of people in your life are already concerned and they mm. already know. You don't have to have a plan. 
You don't have to make any commitments. You just need to say, Hey, listen, I need help. Mm. No one has to define for you. Oh, well, it's only, you only drink two nights a week. Okay. But I'm blocking out two nights a week. Mm. It's a problem, right? Or I just lose my patience a little bit when I'm drinking or I'm drinking all day long because I feel like I'm going to get sick. Mm. Whatever range of alcohol uses in your life, if it doesn't feel okay for you, find someone that you trust who you know has shown up for you mm. consistently and come through for you that you can say, listen, this just doesn't feel good and I want to change it about myself and I don't know what to do. Can we talk about it? Mm. That's all you have to do. That's it. Mm. I, I, and like, I think what kept me drinking for as long as I did, and this is probably my biggest regret is that I didn't stop sooner because I wonder like, I was very successful as a drunk. <laughs> I was <laughs> arguably making the most money, doing the most job. Like that was yep. my prime, if you will say. But right, internally, right. I was a gaping infected wound, like obviously. But I think that's what kept me doing it for as long as I did was that I was such a good drunk and people will tell you like I didn't even know you were blacked out at that thing like you had it mm, together yeah. like you weren't falling yeah. over you you never embarrassed yourself I never had a hard rock bottom you know mm. I had a lot of soft bottoms and it it got to the point where I made my co-host on our e-show did you know filter go watch it on Hulu um he was sober and he like did he's like i don't give a shit if you get sober but like damn you you have a problem like you're showing up like that yeah do you want to talk about it like he was the first person where i was like oh this person gets it and like doesn't yeah, care no, and no. that's like alarming to me why doesn't he care why like shouldn't he like mm. and that was the first time in my life where it was when I talked to someone who had been on it at the same level as me yeah. and was like, I see through your bullshit and I see through your, right. and you know, he was like becoming my best friend too. At the time there was a lot of trust. There was a lot of, and you know, we're still best friends yeah. to this day. Um, I wanted to ask about boundaries with relapse, because as you were talking mm. about the loved ones, I've, remember all the times that I said I was going to quit and would go like 30 or 60 days and be like, okay, I did it. I did quit. I did and was successful. And now I'm going to start drinking again. And like, yeah. where do we set boundaries maybe with the people we love and ourselves of like relapse being an excuse or an issue? No one else is responsible for your recovery. Mm. And at the same time, people have to do what feels best for them. Right. So people may have their feelings hurt. They may be upset. They may not have had the same vision for your process. And so therefore they may pull back when you begin to use drugs and alcohol again. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of the process. That's them keeping themselves safe or their environment safe, their own mental health safe, whatever the case may be. But no one else is responsible for that. Mm. So if you're looking to someone to say, I need support, that's fine. Make sure you're not covertly asking them, I need you to do this recovery thing for me mm. because nobody else is responsible for that, right? Mm. So a lot of times when it comes to families, when it comes to romantic relationships, there's these blurred boundaries mm -hmm. of like, well, don't you have a meeting today? Or, aren't, you know, today's day 542 or, um, you know, oh, do you think you should be going out to dinner with that person? I remember they were a little crazy back in the mm -hmm. day. No one else can be responsible for your recovery. Mm. None. Mm. Damn. That was some truth spoken right there too. Cause it, yeah, it, it all, it all ties back to your will to, and again, I don't know how to say this without being like your, your want to keep keeping this disease or infliction or problem at bay. Right. Like yeah. there's, it, now to me, it's so easy, but in the beginning, it was like the first two weeks were the fucking hardest. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. what just kept me going was this, di it just felt different than every other time where I was yeah. like, yeah. this has to be it. And so any, um, any like final wrap up advice for people, maybe, uh, 
that are thinking uh, about this subject now that we've had such a gorgeous conversation about it? Yeah. I mean, the, the, I don't have any like amazing words of wisdom that you're going to like make with your <laughs> to get on a t-shirt, but something that I was thinking of when you were just talking about will is I was reframing that in my mind as honesty with yourself Ooh, say it because that because will is like your like energy mm. i feel your motivation and some mornings i mean i don't feel like doing anything amen like <laughs> today it's where i am it's raining it's miserable things. i didn't even feel like coming into my office because i Ugh. actually had to put on real shoes it's terrible you look gorgeous. but you did it thank you thank you thank you i did it but my will my energy on a day when it's beautiful out, I'm like here early, you know, life's great. So I think it's just, it's more so how honest can you be with yourself Mm. and, and how honest are you willing to be with yourself? And that's not always a beautiful process, but like, it's absolutely worth it. Mm. No matter what you're going through, whether it's drug and alcohol addiction or an unhealthy relationship or changing careers or making choices that kind of go against family legacies, like, being honest with yourself is like the, it's like the, the keystone of all of that, man. Now you just have me, my brain going down another hole of like, we need to do a whole episode <laughs> on just getting out of unhealthy relationships. Cause that could have really helped me 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Bryn, you are just such a delay and such a well-informed and, and, and incredible guest. And thank you for the work that you do because we definitely need more of it. I hope that this helps some people out there listening. And so where can the Comedy Dawn find you and your work and, and find more all, all about what you do? We, we have a lot of places. You can go to ncatherapy.com. We are on Instagram, ncatherapy. We post all kinds of stuff all day long. Right now we're doing things on the road. We kind of pick like different topics. Uh, there's a Facebook page. I think the But those are kind of the three. Of course, make sure you check out all that I can So I was binging it this morning. It's so helpful. It's just good stuff that you can talk about.